Hello, everybody. You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, where I'm sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Compass Real Estate, the region's largest and most dynamic real estate company in the Valley. For more information and to view current listings, visit compass.com. Everybody, I really enjoy reading and learning from others, which helps guide me to the quote that I'm going to share with you today. But also, I want to thank my friend, Deidre Ashley, who's the executive director of the Jackson Hole Community Counseling Center. I was speaking to Deidre this week. She did inform me that June is Man Mental Health Month, and she turned me on to a website called Man Therapy. It's mantherapy.org. Check it out. It is hilarious if you've never seen it. And this leads us all into the quote that I'm going to share with you, which is just because no one else can heal or do your inner work for you doesn't mean you can, should, or need to do it alone. And that's by Lisa Oliveira. So everybody, remember to go, if your man, woman, doesn't matter, to go check out mantherapy.org. It is hilarious. You'll learn some great stuff. And one of the things it talks about is journaling, which I do enjoy doing with frequency and regularity. I can be much better, but I do enjoy spending time with the journal and getting my thoughts on the paper. And today on episode 195, I speak with Annie Finn of Brain Health Kitchen. Folks, this one's really close and important to me. My mom was diagnosed with early onset dementia and passed away with the side effects of Alzheimer's. And so what Annie talks about is really, really important for us all. Annie is somebody who moved here to Jackson practically right out of medical school and ran her own solo practice for several years. Being a person who enjoys learning, Annie decided, hey, I gotta do something else. I'm a doctor, I'm raising kids, so while they're in summer camp, I'm gonna go to culinary school. That's what Annie did. Now, retired from being a practicing medicine, Annie has Brain Health Kitchen. This has been a project of hers for quite some time now. And she's combining her passion for the culinary arts with her professional background of being a doctor to help people learn how healthy eating is connected to having a healthy brain. And I so enjoy Annie for doing the work that she's doing. And again, this is really close to my heart and I know for my brother and sister as well. Annie, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's a delight to be able to have time and sit down and and talk to you and get to learn more about who you are and what you're doing out here in Jackson Hole. Well, thanks for having me, Stefan. I was delighted that you invited me on the podcast. You are welcome. It's people like you that make up the fabric of our community and uh, interesting things that people are doing in our community, which never cease to amaze me of all the interesting, fun things that are happening around here. Let's start off with you sharing. How did you land in Jackson Hole and how long have you been here in Jackson Hole? Oh, so that's kind of an interesting story. Everyone has their Jackson Hole story, right? Mm -hmm. I moved to Jackson in 1994 and I had been living in Chicago with my husband 
And I'd gone to medical school there and I was finishing up my obstetrics and gynecology uh, residency program. And I was looking at jobs in the city. He was looking at joining a bank there as a partner. And we had this epiphany that, why don't we just move to someplace really nice in the mountains instead? We were starting to see our lives sort of, you know, play out like all the people around us where, you know, you join a firm or you get entrenched in a job and you live in the city and then you end up living in the suburbs. And before you know it, you're there for the rest of your life. And we had gone to school in Colorado. We'd always wanted to come back to the mountains. And my husband had actually been a ski bum and lived in his truck for a winter outside of the Mangy Moose parking lot. Nice. <laughs> when That's he a was cold winter. <laughs> where he lived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and basically looked in the restaurant windows of the Mangy Moose thinking, oh, I wish I could eat there. So that's why Jackson Hole came up on his radar. Like, let's look at Jackson. We should go there. And so long story short, that's what we did. We, uh, I found a practice opportunity in Jackson. He changed jobs and went there to work for Foster Freeze at the Brandywine Fund. And we've been there since 1994. How cool. And you practice medicine here in Jackson? I, I did. Yeah. Okay. I, I came to Jackson to join another doctor in practice uh -huh. and that didn't work out. And so I ended up being a solo practitioner in OB for my first seven years in Jackson. Nice. Which is not something I would recommend to anyone. <laughs> it certainly wasn't my intention fresh out of residency to go to a small community with a 55 bed hospital and be on my own, basically. There were other doctors in town that delivered babies as well that I could mm -hmm. use for coverage, but they weren't obstetricians, gynecologists. And so I, I felt very much on my own for the first several years. And, and 94 is not that long ago in the world of the medical field, but even life. How many OB doctors were in Jackson at that time when you came here? There was one other OBGYN physician. There was a family practice doctor, Dr. Buzz Britka, who a lot of people love and adore, who also did obstetrics. Mm -hmm. And then there were two OB doctors that were retiring the year that I got there. Mm, so it was good timing. They needed your yeah. services. And Dr. Rich Sugden, whom a lot of people know, was also delivering babies, but sort of phasing out of that part of his career. Um, yeah, there was a huge need and there were no female OB joyans. It was a bit of a, a novelty when I arrived in Wyoming in 1994. So in Wyoming, you were the first female OBGYN? No, I was the second that I know of. In the state. Wow. Board certified. Yeah. That is, well, it just shows how small and rural of a state Wyoming is. It does. It does. It also reflected what was happening in my specialty. You know, when I started medical school, gosh, was that like 1986 or something? You know, most of the people in my medical school class were male you know, about two thirds to three quarters were male. And then by the time I, when I graduated from my residency, eight years later in OBJN specifically, uh, two thirds of the graduates were female. So there was sort of this, you know, feminization, if you will, of the specialty that happened while I was training. Hmm. Important area for women to be represented for sure. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And when I, when I got to town, a lot of women were clamoring for a female doctor, especially for OB and gynecology. And so I have to say I was busy from day one. And for the entire 20 years that I practiced in Jackson, it never slowed down, not even for a minute. <laughs> and so you're not practicing OBGY, is that correct? OBGY? N. 
OBGYN. My wife's not going to be happy with me. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. For 20 years, and you're not doing that practice anymore. No, I retired from your practice in 2015. I'm sorry, 2010. 2010. Yeah. But you didn't retire completely. No, like I say, you should never retire your brain. (laughs) Actually, my intention when I gave up my medical practice was I've been doing it for a long time. I loved every minute of it. For the last six or seven years, I'd focused primarily on menopausal health, which was a huge need. And I feel like I had, you know, this, this wonderful group of patients that had started with me when I moved to Jackson and also just stayed with me. So I felt like we'd been through a lot of life stages together, you know, like infertility, pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, menopause. I did a lot of gynecological surgery. I felt like I had a really good run, but I was at a point in my life where my kids were in middle school. I'd had a full-time nanny ever since they were one week old who lived in our guest house. I, I needed that kind of backup to be able to be able to do what I did. And I was just really aching to be there in the mornings to make them breakfast. I wanted to be at their soccer tournaments. I wanted to see their ski matches. And I tried to go part-time for a while, but that's really difficult to do for a lot of different reasons. So I decided to retire and be a full-time mom for a little while. I bet your kids loved it. (laughs) Well, they were in middle school, so who knows? I think the name of the game at that age is FaceTime. Uh (laughs) So I was, yeah, we had good conversations while I was driving them to their soccer tournaments, you know, Mm -hmm. like way, way far away. Like we drive in Wyoming and it was good. It was really good to be home. But, you know, within, you know, six months or so, I was really itching to do something else. And I've always been a, a really passionate home cook. And I've always studied the culinary arts. And I had this idea bouncing around the back of my brain that I wanted to go to culinary school. So when my kids went to uh, summer camp for the month of August, like they did every year since they were little, I decided to go to culinary school. And I did that for a couple summers in a row. And that's how I shifted from medicine to becoming a food-focused physician. Where did you go to culinary school? Well, I did it a couple of different ways. I didn't do, you know, a traditional degree like you would if you were a chef because, you know, taking off for six to 12 months saying to my family, well, I got to go to New York for a year. I'll see you guys later. That just wouldn't really fly. So what I did was I would focus two weeks at a time, one month at a time at locations that interested in me. I was really interested in the, the cooking of central Mexico. So I went to a cooking school in Tepotzan, Mexico, which is in the mountains outside of Mexico City to this cooking school called Cocinar Mexicano. And in the mountains of central Mexico, they have a very healthful cuisine. It's very plant forward. There's not much meat, fish, or seafood. So I learned some really cool ancient techniques about cooking healthfully, sort of a Mexican spinoff of the Mediterranean diet. And then I went to Italy and studied with a woman in Tuscany for two weeks and learned everything I could learn about cooking vegetables there. Eventually I went to the Culinary Institute of America in San Antonio, Texas, and I did a two-week boot camp there, which, which really helped me cement the idea in my brain that I wanted to do something with food, coming back around to my medical background to really help people eat better. Well, I certainly can see where that's needed when <laughs> traveling out. I mean, Jackson's kind of the unreal, real world here. But even in Jackson, there's certain health problems. 
And, oh, and I saw them. Absolutely. As an OB doctor, you know, you see pretty much all the problems that your community has. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like the, the equalizer where people come in to have their babies or have problems in the emergency room. And I saw a lot of people suffering from poor nutrition. Mm-hmm. And because they had poor nutrition, they had more pregnancy complications. And they also had more complications after surgeries, even elective surgeries. And this spanned all of the socioeconomic you know, groups. It wasn't just people that didn't have access to good quality food. It was people that had access, but were making the wrong choices. So I had this sneaking suspicion the whole time that I was practicing, especially towards the end of my career, that if people just ate a better diet and knew a little bit more about nutrition, could probably prevent a lot of the things that even OBGYNs deal with in terms of needing emergency surgeries or problems with pregnancy, lots of the chronic diseases for sure, like obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, Alzheimer's, all of these things could be prevented with proper care and attention to nutrition. And now what is the business that you're doing now blending in your medical field with, with nutrition? Well, after I retired, Mm -hmm. I started coming back and doing cooking classes. I actually was on staff at Central Wyoming College, CWC, which has a cooking school in Jackson, as most people know. And I was a clinical instructor. So I just started teaching healthy cooking classes at the Elks Lodge. And some of these were healthy Mediterranean dishes. Some of these were healthy Mexican dishes from my training in Teplitzlan. I taught a Moroccan class. I taught a desperation dinners class about how to get dinner on the table really quickly using whole foods. So I was doing a lot of things like that. I was doing a lot of writing. I had a a column in one of the local newspapers called the Foodie Files that ran for about two years. Hmm. I started writing for local magazines. So I I was kind of bouncing around and just like really having a lot of fun, honestly, and spending time with my boys as I had intended. And then around 2015, a couple of things happened that really pushed me in the direction of focusing on nutrition for brain health. Um, The first thing that happened was my mother was diagnosed with an early stage of Alzheimer's disease called mild cognitive impairment. And while I was trying to figure out what was going on with my mom and getting her diagnosed and then diving deep into the literature to see how I could help her, I came upon a huge mountain of studies in the scientific literature that linked nutrition and Alzheimer's disease. And no one really seemed to know about it. Back in 2015, nobody was talking about this. I wasn't reading about it much in my medical journals unless I really looked for it. And so I had this, another epiphany that, oh my gosh, I should be using my medical degree and whatever culinary training I've picked up through the years to really help people focus on preventing age-related cognitive decline. So I started the Brain Health Kitchen, which started out as a cooking school in my kitchen at home where people would come over and I would teach them how to cook from a couple of different studies based on the Mediterranean diet studies and the mind diet study, which is a spinoff of Mediterranean diet that shows how to eat to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And I did a collaboration with the hospital where we did a six week dementia prevention course. One of the first in the country that was headed up by Dr. Martha Stern, who's a cognitive health specialist at St. John's health. And so we did a series of these brain works classes, we called them, where we teach people all the things that are based on evidence you can do to help protect your brain as it ages. And then people kept asking me just to do the cooking classes, because of course, you know, the food part is the most fun (laughs) when you go to these things. And so I started doing a lot of classes and then eventually I um, turned Brain Health Kitchen into an online resource, which is a website, brainhealthkitchen.com. 
it's a cooking school. I know I now do brain health retreats in locations in Jackson, as well as places like Panama, Tuscany, Italy, Sicily, Italy. I do them in South Carolina. I've done them in Cincinnati, Ohio. I've done them all over the place, basically. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements about how to prevent dementia and Alzheimer's with lifestyle. And I wrote a book this year about how to eat to protect your brain. I'm making notes because <laughs> this is really close to me. My siblings and I, my brother and sister and I, lost our mother to Alzheimer's. And, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yes. And she was about 67 when she passed away. Oh, um, sorry. So young. It, she was very young. She was diagnosed quite young with early onset dementia. And which then progressed to being officially Alzheimer's. And it was hard to see your parent decline in that way. And not only was it hard, but it was also a challenge because as the person declines, they don't know what to say how to express their thoughts and their feelings very well. And somebody gets targeted as though that you're taking away some of their freedoms. And it was, it was a rough go for sure. But you know, it's something else causing that those reactions to come about. Um, yes, I appreciate I the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's incredibly challenging for families dealing with a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's especially early onset, because your loved one is still in a stage where they expect to be independent. And there's a lot of pushback about the help that they need in terms of deciding when to stop driving. You know, do they need a caregiver? Do they long, you know, be placed in a facility, you know, or can they stay at home? There's all these questions. There's a lot more resources now, probably than when you went through this. Mm -hmm. I have a neurologist friend who's written great books about this. There are a lot of people talking about it on podcasts now. And there's, there's a lot of websites that are helpful and also nonprofit organizations that I'm involved with. But, you know, 10 years ago, boy, you probably felt like you were on your own. Yes. The doctors were, they said, just search online. That, that was the best thing that they could offer. And there was never, even when she was first diagnosed, there was never a conversation of, well, let's look at the diet. And especially once when she was in a assisted living facility, it was, I doubt their diet was focused around good brain health. So I, I'm really curious to know with the complexity of running the facilities that offer assisted living, how much have they adopted this type of philosophy of what people eat, how important that is for people's brain health and physical health and are they able to intertwine that into their operations because they have certain guidelines that they have to meet? It's extremely slow to come to facilities such as this, even hospitals. Mm. You know, our hospital, St. John's Health, has an amazing menu so that when you go in to have surgery or, you know, whatever, a short hospital stay, you can actually eat whole foods. But most hospitals are not like that still. And we're talking about a couple of different things here with brain health. I would like to categorize it in people's brains as prevention versus treatment. 
Okay. So what I do with Brain Health Kitchen is in the realm of prevention, where we have solid studies and hundreds and hundreds of them that show that a certain dietary pattern, like the Mediterranean diet and the MIND diet, can reduce your risk of getting Alzheimer's by as much as 53%. And when it's combined with other lifestyle interventions like exercise and mindfulness, it can actually reduce um, dementia total by up to 70%. So this we know for fact in terms of prevention, okay? We did not know this 10 years ago. This is why I got so excited when I stumbled onto this research in 2015 while I was helping my mom. Now, once you have Alzheimer's disease, we don't know if a diet can actually slow down the process or reverse it. That has not been proven yet. We do know there are some solid studies that people who have mild cognitive impairment, which is where my mom was at in 2015. Now she's somewhere in the realm of you know, moderate Alzheimer's. But back in 2015, she was still mild cognitive impairment. She was still driving her car, going to church, walking around her neighborhood, things like that, living alone and independently. So if someone who has MCI, there's studies that show that eating a mind diet or a Mediterranean diet can slow down the progression of the disease. So that's what we did. We switched her to the MIND diet. The MIND diet study came out in 2015. This was a landmark paper out of Rush University. That what very, university? A Rush University in Chicago. Rush, you know. Okay, thank you. Yeah, they very elegantly divided food, you know, what you should eat for your brain into 10 brain healthy food groups and five brain unhealthy ones. And when I read this paper, it basically changed the trajectory of my life. And I decided to focus exclusively on helping people eat better. And the Mayan diet is a really important part of that. It's still one of the best papers we have on this topic. So what we did, what my brothers and I did for my mom is we, we cleaned out her refrigerator, basically. We took away her driver's license. One of my brothers actually moved in with her temporarily to see you know, if, he could, if we could keep her at home for as long as possible. And he's still there. Seven years later, he's still, he's still living with her, which everyone knows is incredibly difficult and a huge sacrifice. But she's doing really well. What we did was... Number one, no more alcohol. Number two, no more junky processed foods. Mm. Number three, we amped up the servings of berries and leafy greens, whole grains, and fish and seafood in her diet. These are some of the most important brain health groups identified by the MIND diet study to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. You know, it, it was as simple and as difficult as, you know, making sure she's not eating too many processed crackers or junky pie from the grocery store or cookies or sweets or ice cream or sweetened yogurt. Like we had to weed all of that stuff out of her life. But because she had memory impairment, you know, out of sight, out of mind usually is the prevailing way you can do these things, mm -hmm. but slowly, slowly. And, you know, we can't believe that she's still at home. Honestly, we can't believe that she's still doing as well as she is living at home seven years later with my brother there, my other brother lives nearby in San Diego. And I try to help out as much as I can from Jackson, but she's doing quite well. She hasn't needed to go into facility yet. I'm, I'm very happy that your, your mom's still able to live at home. That's a big, big factor in, in the brain health as well, because it's what she knows. For my mom, especially, that seems yeah. to be an important piece of the puzzle. Now, another thing that's important, the difference between what it's happening in my mom's brain and what happened to your mother is two different things. There's an early onset type of Alzheimer's that afflicts people starting in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm. I'm suggesting maybe your mom had that form of Alzheimer's because she was so young. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a different type of Alzheimer's 
than late onset Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Less than 3% have this early form of Alzheimer's. It's more likely to be transmitted through a genetic mutation that's inheritable. It's less likely to be associated with diet and lifestyle. Although there's tons of studies going on right now to see if you could also prevent early onset Alzheimer's, but the studies are not nearly as promising as it is for the garden variety type of Alzheimer's that most people would come down with, which is the late onset, which usually starts in your 60s or 70s. But here's one of the coolest things to come out of the literature that I have learned is that we used to think that people would get Alzheimer's and it was just a shame. Like, oh, you know, my grandfather was 82. He had Alzheimer's and people say, oh, that's a shame, but he was old. You know, that was the, the old thinking. Like when I was in medical school, that's how we were taught about the disease. But now we know that Alzheimer's actually starts in the brain 20 to 30 years before the memory becomes impaired. So Whoa. before any symptoms at all, it's a chronic process of the way your, your brain deals with waste products in part and inflammation. So now we're thinking of Alzheimer's as a multifactorial disease. There are many paths to Alzheimer's in terms of problems with your blood sugar regulation, problem with chronic illness and inflammation, even genetic factors, dietary factors, exercise and lifestyle factors. There's all these different paths that can increase or decrease your risk of late onset Alzheimer's. But we know that these start to come into play in early adult life, starting in your thirties and forties. Interesting. Interesting. I'm, I'm learning so much from you, Annie. <laughs> I, I am. And do you talk about some of this in, in your book in, in, Remind me again the name of your book that you wrote. It's called The Brain Health Kitchen. Okay. And the exact title is To Be Determined. I'm still working on the book. I've been working on it for many, many years, but my publisher will be offering it in January of 2023. So we're actually putting the finishing touches on it. Today, I was doing some final edits and it should go to print in June. Okay. So it's-, yeah. it's And I can't wait to get your copy. It's not out yet, but there's a lot of this information on my website brainhealthcoaching.com. And I also write directly to people in a newsletter, which I've been doing for, gosh, four years now, mm -hmm. uh, a monthly newsletter that's free where I provide a recipe because a lot of what I do is creating recipes from the brain healthy food groups that are incredibly delicious that people would actually want to eat because <laughs> that's a big part of my mission is to make brain healthy eating really delicious because if it's not delicious, then you're not going to do it. <laughs> And it's not, not worth it, not worth the effort. So anyways, I write original recipes. I give those out in my newsletter every month. And I also highlight what's happening in the research that I think people need to know, particularly people that may feel like they're at risk for Alzheimer's because they have a risk factor for it, like heart disease, or because they've had a family member with it, like you and I. Mm. Annie, I, I want to get into what you're putting out there in your newsletter and the resources on your, your website. And, and I have a few questions for you sure. as well. But we're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor and then, then we're gonna be back and talk more. Compass Real Estate is the market leader in Jackson Hole, providing every client with unparalleled professionalism and breakthrough marketing strategies for fine properties. Their organization is comprised of dedicated and experienced real estate professionals, and they offer a collection of some of the most sought after properties in the Valley. For more information on buying or selling in Jackson Hole, visit compass.com or give them a call 307-733-6060. 
Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Annie, welcome back. I'm learning so much from you. And gosh, with being a child and a sibling of somebody who lost a parent to Alzheimer's, I wish I'd had this information several years ago when our mom was diagnosed. But like you said, it wasn't available. How does somebody go about reading and obtaining your newsletter? Is it on your webs your website? It's really easy. If you go to my website, brainhealthkitchen.com, mm-hmm. um, and you go to the right side of the homepage, there'll be a little box where you type in your email. And then you click on the box and you get an email to con- confirm it. And I don't, I don't sell my list. I don't send spam. I send one newsletter a month. I don't fill up people's inbox. I really do this as a service to people. I spend a lot of time putting together what I think are the most important things people need to know every month along with a, a couple of recipes to get them really inspired to, to eat more like this. And you, you mentioned a, f- a few items that I, I enjoy consuming, a glass of wine or, or having a, an adult beverage on occasion, not certainly indul- overindulging like I used to when I was in my younger years of, of college and moving out here to Jackson. Is it recommended to cut alcohol out altogether or is moderation and a glass of wine on an occasion acceptable. Oh boy, is this a big topic? Mm-hmm. Everyone that knows me personally knows that I'm a red wine lover, mm-hmm. and I have been for some time. And my husband collects red wine, so we're we're definitely aficionados. However, in the original Mind Diet study that came out, red wine was one of the ten brain healthy food groups. Interesting. Which people always love because they're like, oh, I love red wine. I drink red wine all the time, and it's good for my brain. So not so fast, right? In the Mind Diet study, the amount of red wine that was recommended on a daily basis was five ounces. And if people know how small of a glass of wine that is, that's probably the smallest restaurant pour that you would get at a restaurant in Jackson or any place else. Mm-hmm. This was quite small. It's like a juice glass. And this was based on the Mediterranean diet studies, of which there are more than 35. They show that having a little bit of red wine with a meal when you're with people, and you're enjoying yourself and the Mediterranean lifestyle can actually be uh, health promoting. It might be the polyphenols in the wine, although that's probably been disproven because you'd have to drink a lot of wine to get, you know, you know, a, like a, a therapeutic dose of polyphenols. Mm. Um, you have to drink a barrel. So maybe it's just that it's a mood, re- it's a, like a stress reducing drink. Mm-hmm. It's a stress reducing beverage to end the day while you have a meal. So that's how they do it in the Mediterranean. Come on over to the United States and then come into the Jackson Hole bubble. The way people drink is completely different, right? There's alcohol being consumed without food. There's alcohol being consumed in mass quantities over many, many years. And this is not the, what we're talking about. When we're saying that red wine might help protect your brain. So when the Mind Diet study came out in 2015, they included that. 
There is a mind diet study ongoing now that's a follow-up of the original. It's a randomized controlled trial, which is really rare in nutrition because it's hard to do these studies. It's out of rush, the same place. And they're taking 300 people on the mind diet strictly, 300 people on another diet that's also kind of healthy. They don't know what they're being studied for, right? But they decided to drop red wine as a brain healthy food group. And the reason why Dr. Martha Claire Morris, the lead researcher on the study, who came out to Jackson a few years ago to speak, when I asked her why she's dropping red wine, she said, you know what? It's just really too hard to study. People say they drink five ounces, but you, you know they're probably drinking 10 or even more at a sitting. And so we just wanted to take that out of, out of the equation. And it turns out that decision they made years ago was really brilliant because there was a very large study that came out of the UK this year, looking at the MRI, like the brain scans of people, how much they drink and how much does it shrink their brain over time. Mm. And the findings are that the, the myth of moderate drinking is just that it's a myth, but we used to consider moderate drinking, which was one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men, you know, it with food actually shrinks the brain more than if you drink less than that. So me, the red wine lover, as I'm writing my book these past couple of years, and I'm seeing these studies come out, I also had red wine and, you know, it's brain healthy. Sure. You can have a little bit of red wine. I do. It's not so bad for your brain in moderation. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I'm seeing all this data come out and I actually had to take it from my brain healthy food categories and put it into my six foods to limit or avoid. Okay. Sadly for other red wine drinkers out there. I feel like there's just so much miscommunication about this, even in the medical realm, that drinking is okay and drinking is good for your brain. And the data, the real data we see, like how much does it actually shrink your brain? It's hard to ignore. Mm. Okay, that's a, that'll be a tough one. I sell red wine too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't at know liquor that. store, yeah, <laughs> liquor store next Albertsons and Jackson's I, Marketplace, south of town. Yeah, so you know when I become an advocate of, and this is backed up by by a handful of studies, is taking breaks from drinking, like a dry January or a sober October, but doing two or three of those, you know, significant breaks, month long breaks, even during the year, because studies show that if you take a full month off. Six months later, you're drinking significantly less than you did before. Mm. The way to sort of curtail the amount that you drink, if you have access to good wine, especially it's sometimes it's difficult not to drink more than, you know, you think is prudent. So taking, taking little holidays from drinking is a really good way to kind of, you know, make sure as you get older, you're not drinking more and more, you're actually drinking less. Yeah. I certainly do that on occasion. Take some alcohol breaks. It's good. And only drink the good stuff. That's right. <laughs> you also mentioned something else, which I have been struggling with putting this in my daily routine. So for example, today I missed it, which is, and it's two things that one, you mentioned mindfulness and I want to, I'd love for you to talk more about that, but also is journaling helpful in any way for brain health as well? for anything that you, you're aware of? Well, journaling, that's a good question. There are studies that show that journaling is a form of mindfulness. Oh. And when combined with a gratitude practice mm -hmm. can actually help improve sleep. And also it's, it's a big part of stress mitigation, mm -hmm. really. So all of these things I, I put under the category of stress mitigation. We all have stress in our lives. How do we deal with it? 
you know, do we get really bent out of shape or are we able to just go through the ebbs and flows of the stressful times in our lives? And how people deal with stress is actually a really important way to approach healthy aging. There is not as much study that's solid, like I like to see as in the exercise and nutrition realms, as you might say, you know, it's a little bit harder to study, but people that meditate actually have bigger brains than people that don't. So there's that meditating on a regular basis. There was one study that's landmark done on over 800 nuns in the Midwest. This was done a couple of decades ago. And what they found was that this group of nuns who all had the same lifestyle, mind you, they all meditated. They all had the same diet. They all had the same on exercise. These nuns gave permission to have their brains looked at on autopsy after they passed. So they studied these women with cognitive testing and all the other types of testing they had available to them. They did brain scans on them. And then when they passed, they looked at their brain cells to see who had Alzheimer's on, you know, on pathology. And one of the really interesting findings was that some people were able to go through their life without any symptoms of Alzheimer's. They still performed really well on their cognitive testing. But when you looked at their brains, it was, they were riddled with amyloid plaques and tau tangles which are the pathological signs of Alzheimer's disease. So how could this be? How could they have healthy, no symptoms whatsoever, but Alzheimer's disease in their brain? And the finding was that their attitude on life was the primary feature that distinguished these women from getting Alzheimer's symptomatically. And the most important personality trait was positivity. Mm. So this goes back to, you know, outlook on life, stress mitigation, whether people get, you know, just bogged down by all the negative aspects of life where they can rise above it and focus on the positive. Mm. So the science is interesting. Uh-huh. It, it is. I, I think last week I meditated. I had my mindfulness practice twice last week. I'm going to be good on myself. So I'm shooting for four times a week this month, you know, beginning in June that I'll do it. And, and it's just taken 10 minutes. So do you see that that meditation, that mindfulness practice? It's not about someone having to spend 30 minutes or an hour. How much time do you see helps? I don't know what the studies say about the time. I think consistency is more important than the time mm. you've been meditating. And I know that like five or 10 years from now, we're going to have great data on this. But for now, I can just tell you what I think is happening. And I think that if you are able to train your brain to calm itself down for a minute or two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, you have the power to do that to yourself. That has got to be something that is important for, for having the pathways that favor healthy brain overcome the pathways that favor an unhealthy brain. Because you know, there's, it's, it's about building synapses. And when you're on that meditation pathway, I don't know if you've ever meditated for a spell and it's actually working. Like sometimes it's hard to get into it, especially when you're writing. And sometimes you get into it and you're in the zone and you're like, wow, I feel really good now. Um, you're building this collateral pathway in your brain, which are basically new synapses. The brain is very neuroplastic and it's always developing new synapses if you give it the opportunity and stretch it. So what you're doing is you're building these new synapses so that your, your brain has a different collateral pathway to take when you're really under times of stress. And most of the stress that we have now is it's not like we're being chased by a grizzly bear all the time, right? Or a mountain lion. Although sometimes we are <laughs> in Jackson, 
it's all this perceived stress. It's like, you know, the inbox and your email, it's your to-do list. It's, it's all these things that are perceptions of threat. And so if you can master some calmness over those aspects of your life, I'd be willing to bet it would reduce your risk of Alzheimer's later. And, make you, and not only that, it just makes you happier, calmer, and less reactive to other people. So I'm a big fan, and I realize that it's difficult to start a meditation practice. But all you have to do is one or two minutes consistently. I love your four times a week plan. I think that's perfect. Thank you. You, you mentioned about showing, you know, speaking about gratitudes at the, the stores, we start our meetings and it was recommended for us to start with sharing brags, appreciations, and wins. And over the years, we're now getting to, to starting it instead of calling it a brag appreciation win, what we're calling it is your gratitude moment. What are you grateful for? And I think one day I said, I'm grateful for my shoes because there's a lot of people in the world that don't have shoes. They don't have shoes that don't have holes in them, shoes that protect their feet properly. So today I'm grateful for my shoes. So the reason I share this is through the years of sharing in a gratitude is it doesn't have to be complex. It can be something basic and easy. And we don't have to, I think we as people to allow our brains to be healthy, like you're talking about, we don't have to overthink it. I think that's, I think that's perfect. And I'll tell you how I became a pretty consistent meditator after years, yes. years of struggling Please. because I like to get up in the morning and get things done. However, in the morning is when my brain is probably most receptive to meditation. Mm. Um, but I found a way around that. I'm also receptive meditation after I exercise. Mm. So I get up in the morning, I get my things done. I might meet a friend for a hike. I'll go up the old pass road. I come down, you know, I you know, got that done. I find that right after exercise, I might go back to my car in the parking lot, Old Pass Road, and pull up the app like Headspace or Calm and do a five or 10 minute meditation. And I'm so much more receptive to it then. And I'm able to fit it in. And I really enjoy it too, rather than first thing in the morning when I feel like I got to do X, Y, and Z. Thank you for sharing your experience with that, Annie. It's it's great for us, for me and a lot of people to hear that it, it can happen any time of the day to, to meditate. Yes. And if, I can, if you can carve out an hour to go exercise, you can probably carve out an additional five minutes to mm -hmm. meditate too. For some people, that's how much time they spend in line at Starbucks <laughs> or, or some other coffee shop when you think about it. That's five minutes true. is nothing. Five minutes is nothing. Yeah. Annie. You have brought so much light and joy to my day. Oh, thank you. I, I am very grateful to have had this opportunity. I was very interested to hear about brain health with my mom's experience, but what we have talked about today has, is so close to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and appreciative of you sharing this with everybody who's listening. And remind us again, if people want to connect with you, share with everybody the name of your website and what you're doing. Oh, sure. It's really easy. My website is brainhealthkitchen.com. I have an Instagram account. I'm over there quite a bit, uh, sharing information, recipes, new studies, and that's at brainhealthkitchen. 
I have a newsletter that's free that I send out every month with recipes and what I'm thinking about the new studies that are coming out. You can sign up there on my website or in my Instagram account for that. And I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of cooking classes. A lot, I do a lot of brain health destination retreats. So if you want to contact me, you can just go to my email, which is brainhealthkitchen at gmail.com. Beautiful. Uh, I have two different Instagram channels. I'm going to go on both of those right now and friend Brain Health Kitchen. Oh, good. I can't wait to be friends with you on Instagram and see what you're up yes. to as well. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. I know that I've been doing this for seven years solid now, mm. full time. And I'm always amazed how people don't know about it yet, mm -hmm. that they can actually change the trajectory of their lives, that they can actually keep their brains healthy and vital until their last decades. I think it's all about how do you want to be when you're an older person? You know, do you still want to be doing all the things that we enjoy in Jackson like we do now? For, for me, I do want to enjoy what activities I can, but... I want to be a part of my kids' lives, my wife and I, for us to be together, to be about each other's lives, and to see how early my mom left us, not at her own will, just with what nature did, because one of her dreams was to be a grandmother, and she never really got to experience to be a grandmother, and I want to carry that on. I want to be a grandfather. So Absolutely. to be a part of my boys' lives with my wife and us to see and travel with them and be a part of their lives and, and be a grandfather and tell them about their grandmother that, yeah, that that's what I want. So if I'm hiking in the Tetons, beautiful, but it's those people that I'm close with and being a part of their lives. That's what I want. So that's beautiful. You've just set your brain health mindset. That's the why of how you'll take care of your brain. That's the why. That's how you'll get it done. You've got this goal, and it's an important one. You want your brain span to match your lifespan. You want your brain to be active and vital, even in its last decades. Mm -hmm. And so you have this incredible goal to be there for your grandchildren and maybe your great-grandchildren and really be there, really enjoy them. And that's why you will, you'll go look up the 10 Brain Healthy Food Groups and you look at the food, food groups to limit or avoid. It's really not that difficult. And you'll make sure you get your workouts in. And you'll keep plugging away at the meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And you'll you know, be curious about everything else that science is telling us and how we can protect our brains. That's the why. And you, you've articulated it so beautifully. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. Well, thank you for listening, Annie. And thank you, everybody else, for listening. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, Annie. Very good to see you today. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. To learn more about Annie Finn and Brain Health Kitchen, visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 195. Thank you, everybody, who does help keep this podcast going. But what does help keep it going is you getting out there, sharing it, giving us feedback on Facebook and Instagram. My wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William, and, of course, the marketing director and editor, Michael Morey, since episode number one. I so appreciate you, Michael. I appreciate all of you for sharing your time with me today. Cheers till next week when I see you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.